0: Amen. Thank you to the praise team. Well, I'm excited to continue our series, or really come to the end of our series, on what Jesus says about important things, and to end it in this first week of Advent with what Jesus says about Christmas. What he says about Christmas. So, Thanksgiving is over. Hopefully everybody had a good Thanksgiving on Thursday. Uh, I had a great Thanksgiving. This was the first Thanksgiving where we actually had a meal just the four of us, just the family of four, uh, that we've had since uh, Sophie's been born. It's the first time that's happened, so, uh, I don't, you know, it's just sometimes it works out that way. Uh, but first week of Advent means that it's close, that Christmas is close. And it's particularly close because the, well, actually, it's a bit closer, particularly far away, I'm not sure, because December 25th is a Sunday. I think it's particularly far away, actually. It's, it's a little more further away than, than typical. But we are still getting close to Christmas, And so it makes sense for us to talk here about Christmas, which is all about the birth of Jesus. That God the Son entered into our world. That He was born, that He became like us in every way, yet without sin. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. When I say what Jesus says about Christmas... Actually, Jesus at this point is too young to even say anything. He's just a baby by the end of this uh, genealogy we're going to look at. But his life, the very fact that he was born into this world, says something very important to us about Christmas. So he's not actually speaking in this passage, but he is saying something by the very way in which he enters into this world. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus had a family tree. Jesus had a family tree, and we're given this family tree in Scripture. I don't know if you've ever researched your family tree. Uh, The big thing nowadays is um, Ancestry.com. You see the commercials and and all that, where you can find out your your long history, your long family tree. I was just looking this up. All you have to do is return a small saliva sample in the prepaid envelope and send it in, and they will do a DNA-analyzed family tree of you when you, when they send it back in the mail for a certain price, of course. It's important to know for people. Their family tree, where did they come from? How did they enter this world? What happened before they were born? And we find these all over Scripture, actually. This is the only place we find a genealogy like this. They're all, on all different parts of the Bible. In fact, this can be frustrating for some people when they read the Bible. They'll come to, let's say, the book, even in Genesis, but they come to the book of Numbers or something like that, First and Second Chronicles, and they'll come to this long list of names. Ezra and Nehemiah has us as, well, as well as other parts of the New Testament. And they'll think, what is the purpose of this? Why do I need to read through all of these different names? They don't mean anything to me today. In fact, there's a, a gentleman in our congregation, Bob Graham, who always gets frustrated every time he comes across these long list of names in our, in our Bible study. But actually, I think these genealogies in Scripture are very important. And we'll, hopefully, I'll convince you by the end of this sermon here. Particularly when it comes to Jesus, what we learn about his background reveals what type of Savior he was going to be. What we learn about his background actually reveals the very type of Savior that he is going to be. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And let me just say, I'm going to do my best trying to read through all of these names. (laughs) But uh, bear with me a little bit. And we're not going to talk about every individual on this list, of course, but here we go, the beginning of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. I just thought about how difficult this must be for Kina right now. I don't know if she's spelling these out. Probably not, right? And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph... And Shealtu the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now you might be thinking, first of all, Rick, you did a good job reading those names, right? That was pretty good. Got through all those. You can ask Mitch afterwards whether I got them right, but at least I read through them. But you might be thinking, how does this apply? How do we understand this? And how in the world does this tell us what type of Savior Jesus is? Well, if you look at your bulletin, there's an outline there. Uh, First, we celebrate a Savior who entered our world. Then we celebrate a Savior who welcomes diversity. And lastly, we celebrate a Savior who redeems sinners. Who redeems sinners. First, we celebrate a Savior who entered our world. That's the first thing, that Jesus actually has a genealogy, which is an amazing thing. Uh, There was this one uh, missionary who was working with a particular mission group, and he had told multiple stories about Jesus' life to that mission group, and uh, they ate up all the stories about Jesus, but finally they got the New Testament translated into their language, and when the people began to read Matthew, this is the first thing they would read, right, in the New Testament, they went to the missionary and said, you never told us about this. And the missionary was thinking, well, I mean, what? I, I, I hope this didn't confuse you. And they said, no, this is important. Because all along, I thought you were just telling us fairy stories. We didn't know that Jesus actually had an ancestry and actually entered into our very world. That he was real and part of our world. Friends, that we celebrate a historical savior. Matthew starts off the book of the genealogy. Jesus really lived Actually, you may hear from some popular atheists that there's a question about whether Jesus actually lived. Actually, no academic, no historian, really, doubts the fact that Jesus actually lived. Alright, that's pretty much set in stone right now. Now, of course, people doubt whether he was the son of God. They doubt whether he did the miracles that he did. They doubt the resurrection. And that's obviously a big question in academia. But nobody really doubts the fact that a man named Jesus, a rabbi, famous, well-known rabbi, actually lived in the first century in Israel and created a large following that began to change the world. That's pretty much set in stone. But notice, friends, this list is filled with real names. These are real people who actually lived. It refers to actual historical events like like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the kingship, actual kings who reigned over Israel, the exile, the deportation from Babylon, which Israel had to be taken from the land by the Babylonians and sent away. This actually happened. It ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice the careful language there because Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of course, then Mary being the mother of Jesus. But think about it, friends. Jesus had an actual mom, just like you and I. J.I. Packer, the famous theologian, said God became man, the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Jesus entered our world. And friends, this marks out Jesus from so many other legends, of course, in history. Jesus is not a legend. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a myth. He's not like Hercules who entered the underworld and pulled people out of it and that type of thing. He's not like King Arthur, who may have been a historical figure, but all the legends that surround King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone and all that. He was a real man that actually lived in our world. Tolkien, in a conversation, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he was talking to C.S. Lewis. Who was not a Christian at the time, he was an atheist. And C.S. Lewis said, These are all myths. This whole story about Jesus are myths. And Tolkien said, No, Jack was his name. This is the true myth. This is the myth that all the other myths have pointed to. But this myth actually happened in history. Jesus really did come, he really did die, he really did rise from the dead. This is far more than a legend. Tim Keller, another pastor, theologian, wrote, The biblical Christmas texts are accounts of what actually happened in history. They are not Aesop's fables, inspiring examples of how to live well. Many people believe the gospel to be, not just, uh, to be just another moralizing story, but they could not be more mistaken. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel, good news, an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. This is the heart of the Christian faith, that God really did enter our world. That it's verifiable. He, he really did have a birth. That he really did live for 33 years. He really did die on a Roman cross. He really did resurrect from the dead. In fact, if you could prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, which should be nearly impossible to prove, but let's say you could actually find solid, actual proof that he didn't rise from the dead, the whole of Christianity falls. Because we believe that Jesus came in our world and in our history. He had a genealogy just like you and I. But I think it could be said that the incarnation of Jesus is the greatest miracle in the Bible or in history. Greater even than the resurrection. Because the resurrection is God already in our world who rises from the dead. But here, the creator enters our world. The author comes into our story. George Lucas finding waking up one day and finding himself in Star Wars. Can you imagine that? Mark Twain finding himself in the actual story of Tom Sawyer. Shakespeare in Hamlet or Macbeth or whatever story you want. The creator in our world. Now in one sense, God already knows everything about what it means to be human because he's infinite in his knowledge. So he knows fully what it's like to be human before he ever becomes a human being. But I think you and I would, would say, rightly, it's one thing to know it It's quite another thing to experience it. And one thing you can say about God before Christ came is, as much as he knows everything, and he's omnipotent, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, he doesn't actually know what I'm going through. Because he's never actually experienced it. But the Christian faith now can say with absolute certainty, God knows exactly what I'm going through. Not just in terms of his infinite knowledge, but in his experience. He walked among us just like you and I. Friends, this is worth celebrating. (laughs) This is worth making a big deal of. That Jesus really did enter our world. This is not just a nice little fiction story that we tell. This is not like Santa Claus or Frosty or Rudolph or these little stories that have nice little morals. Hopefully most of our kids are in kid town. Otherwise, put your hands over your ears there. But this is different. This is something that really happened. Friends, this is something worth getting excited about year after year on Christmas. It's not just a silly holiday. I didn't realize, you know, there's a lot of, of little holidays, little silly holidays that uh, most people may, may not even be aware of. This was just some of the ones from December. Okay, these are holidays from December. December 5th is Bathtub Party Day. Did you know that? It's a day to take a bath and have a party. That's what it's for. There's nothing else to it. December 14th is International Monkey Day. So, not just for the United States, the whole world is supposed to be celebrating monkeys on December 14th. December 17th is National Maple, Maple Syrup Day. All right, so that's what you got there. Uh, and then uh, December 12th, National Dingling Day. And I had to know more about that one. So, here's the description that one, one website had. A very special day to, quote, ring your bell. No, we're not talking about the Salvation Army bell ringers standing with their bells and kettles outside of every store in the country on national dingling day you should brace yourself for bizarre and crazy behavior from all the people you encounter today even normally conservative people have been known to go a little crazy on this day it is simply a day to cut loose act a little weird now interestingly enough the origin of national dingalong dingling day despite our diligent efforts we have yet to find the dingling who created this neat day Nor did we find factual information about this day. There was some reference to it as a national day. However, we found no congressional records or presidential proclamation. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) On National Dingling Day. Friends, when we talk about Christmas, this is not a throwaway holiday. This is something worth celebrating. We're talking about God entering our broken world. I'm getting ahead of myself already here. Friends, we want to make a big deal about it here at our church, of course. We want to make a big deal and want you, want you to invite friends. In fact, that's why we're having this Christmas party uh, on December 10th. We want to use it as an opportunity for us as a church to celebrate, but also invite friends. We, we want you to bring people. This is something worth sharing with other people. Worth celebrating as a church. Worth making a big deal about every single year. That's why we do Advent. Right? Advent is the, first, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Just to, to build up the anticipation of this celebration of Christ entering into our world. Now they say that that Christmas and Easter are some of the, the most missed opportunities for Christians. Because your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus yet are far more open to an invitation during this time of year than perhaps any other time. And if you would just invite them, they would be happy to come. They would love to come. They'd love to see and hear and celebrate what Christmas is all about. We celebrate a Savior who entered our world. But notice next... We celebrate a Savior who welcomes diversity. Right here in his genealogy. Look closer at this genealogy, and it is full of surprises. One thing, it's just full of diversity. Uh, Typically, a genealogy in that day was only men, because it was traced through the lineage of men. Well, here Jesus has four women mentioned in his genealogy, which... Typically, Jesus always breaks the typical trend of how things are done. He mentions four women. Uh, he mentions uh, Tamar, which we'll look a little bit more about who she is. Uh, Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, uh, and then Bathsheba, who's actually not mentioned by name. She's mentioned as the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. So four women, in his very genealogy, brings out the diversity. Like he's not going to be a savior just for men. He's raising up the place of woman in the first century already. Gentiles are in his genealogy. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites; they were the sworn enemies of Israel, and yet they find themselves a place in the very genealogy of the Savior who enters our world. Ruth, of course, was—we did a whole series on Ruth. That's why, of course, uh, was a Moabite who had who uh, were also enemies of Israel, off and on throughout Israel's history. And yet, here's Ruth as having a direct lineage to Joseph the. Earthly father of Jesus. We said uh, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite. So he's a male Gentile put right here in this list as well. More than that, friends, you find kings and commoners. All throughout this list. Abraham was a shepherd. David, the greatest king of Israel's history. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, a carpenter. It's not all kings, it's not all commoners We find all different types of people, friends Men and women Jew and Gentile Rich and poor All classes And friends, that is going to be the very mark One of the very marks of Jesus' ministry And what kind of savior he is He is a savior to all All kinds of people Take for example just men and women Christianity is, is known for this very thing when it comes to Christians throughout the world. Just take church attendance, for example. 53% of men attend a church, who claim to be Christian attend a church service. Uh, I'm sorry, 53% of women attend a church service. 46% of men. Pretty close to 50-50. Take Islam, as a difference there in the Muslim community around the world. Only 42% of female Muslims attend worship. 70% of male Muslims Muslims attend worship. There is a clear imbalance, but Christianity has that balance of this is men for men and women. In fact, throughout history, there have been slightly more women who have claimed Christ than men. I'll take, for example, the different classes, the caste system in different cultures. You see Christians through all, all different castes. I want to give you one specific example. I got a picture up there. And, uh, Paul Miller will recognize uh, that couple. And if Amy was here, she would too. So these are some of the folks I met in, um, uh, in Nepal. But it's a neat little story between these two. Uh, the, the, the girl on the right, her name is Rebecca. She is part of the highest caste in uh, Nepal, which is the Brahmin class. It's part of the priestly line of, of Hindus. That's her caste. The guy on the right, his name is Devin, is part of the lowest caste called the, sometimes called the untouchables. I think it was Gandhi that labeled them. That, that, that they are a, a special group of people. Well, those two fell in love. They both became Christians. They fell in love. And because they were such different castes, the highest caste and the lowest caste, they were rejected by families, by their families and friends, uh, or at least her side of the family. So they ran away together and got married. Isn't that neat? It almost sounds like a little Romeo and Juliet story right there, isn't it? Friends they recognize that in Christ there is no caste, there is no difference. He is a savior for all of us. Christianity has been for geniuses and the illiterate. I mentioned C.S Lewis earlier. C.S. Lewis was one of my favorite authors. He was an Oxford professor. He was said in his day to be the most read, well-read person of his day in the world, <laughs> a devout follower of Christ. In the Middle Ages, there were numerous illiterate people who only had the reading of the scriptures on Sundays and the pictures on the walls to understand the story of the gospel, and yet they followed Christ. Those who follow Christ have been filled with the diversity that we see right here in the background of the Savior himself. Friends, let's be a church. Let's be a church that reflects our Savior. One elder recently said, wouldn't it be great if, if First Baptist looked like a miniature United Nations? <laughs> Filled with that level of diversity. May God, give us that. You know, our, our country is so divided right now, based on race and ethnicity and all these things, even class. This is where the church can really stand out. can really make itself known. That we are for all people who follow Christ. The church, I think, not saying our church in particular, but the church in the U.S. has failed, I think, miserably in the past. Some people say, I wish we could go back to the 1950s where everything was much better when it came to morality. Not in every area, and not particularly in this area. In the 1950s, you'd be hard-pressed to find a church that looks like our church. You would find a church for Anglo-Saxon whites, Find a church for, for, for African Americans, you find a church for Asians, you'd find a church for Latinos, but you would not see a mix. On Sunday morning, it's been described as the most segregated hour of the week. Our church did stand out in one sense in its history. I don't know if you know this, but we were part of the abolitionist movement. This church took a strong abolitionist stand against slavery in its time, which is great. Friends, let us see the diversity of classes as we reach Haverhill. We want to reach our neighborhood, the people surrounding our facility right here uh, and around us. But more than that, we also want to reach the middle-class suburbs of Haverhill. We want to reach East Broadway. Anyone ever driven down East Broadway and seen the mansions on East Broadway? There's one of them for sale if you go to realtor.com for $1.79 million right now. So if you want to buy me a house, I'd be happy to take that one. That's a good one. right? I couldn't even afford the taxes. Never mind. Don't even buy it for me. Uh, But... Whoever lives in those houses, we want to reach them for Jesus too. It's indiscriminate. I heard from a recently overheard a conversation where a pastor was saying, Well, we see in Scripture that God clearly favors the poor. Wrong. Actually, the Torah explicitly forbids that. Exodus 23. Do not show favoritism to the poor in a lawsuit. There is equality. And Christ is a Savior for all types of people. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We celebrate a Savior who comes and welcomes diversity. But more than that, look at the third section here. We celebrate a Savior who redeems sinners. This is perhaps the most shocking part, I think, as we look at his genealogy. The most surprising is the shady characters that are in this genealogy. You may not recognize this. You may not know the story behind many of these people. But you want to talk about a dysfunctional family tree? This is a dysfunctional family tree. I mentioned Tamar. I'll tell you a little bit more about Tamar. Uh, so Tamar was a Canaanite. She was married to Judah's son. And uh, he died. Judah's son died. So he gave Judah's, uh, his his son's brother. To Tamar. Which was typical in that day. That's, you know. But he died. And there were no kids. And he had a third son. And Judah said, I'm not going to give my third son to this woman. Because I don't want to have him die. Maybe there's something wrong with this woman. Maybe she's cursed. So he was unwilling to give his third son to Tamar. So Tamar decided to take this under her own hands. And she decided to dress like a prostitute. And entice her (laughs) father-in-law. Like I said, the kids are upstairs, right? Ties her father-in-law to sleep with her. She gets pregnant. He doesn't know that it was actually her because she dressed and disguised as a prostitute. Until she is, he is, finds out she's pregnant and he is ready to kill her for being unfaithful. Even as a, a widow. And before he does so, she reveals to him that she, he indeed is the very father. And that is the line that Christ comes from. <laughs> More than that, you guys know the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to another man, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's most faithful soldiers. In fact, it talks about David's most faithful, faithful soldiers, and Uriah is, is listed as one of the most faithful in that very list. Well, David saw Bathsheba, this beautiful uh, woman, and he said, you know what, I think I want her for myself. So what did he do? He took her, and oops, he got her pregnant as well got to cover this up. He brings Uriah back from the war and says, go back home, Uriah. And Uriah says, I can't go back home. I can't go and be with my wife when all my fellow soldiers are out there on the battlefield. And so what does he do? He tries to get Uriah drunk, has a little party with him, and then tries to send him home. But Uriah is just too faithful to David, too faithful to Israel. So he lays down on his own front steps and he falls asleep there. So David says, okay, now I'm really stuck. Everyone's going to think Bathsheba is unfaithful, probably kill her, even if they don't recognize that I'm the father, so what am I going to do? He writes a letter to his commander and says, I want you to take Uriah, put him in the front of the battle, make sure he doesn't come home. He seals it and hands it to Uriah to carry himself to the battlefield. Unknowing what's in it, carrying his own death note. He does so, Uriah is killed, David marries Bathsheba, and wow, what a hero David is, because now he saved the poor war widow and brought her into the palace and made her a princess. And God saw it all, and it displeased him greatly. This is the lineage. That's the the lineage right there, David and Bathsheba, that leads to the very Messiah we're talking about here. Even when you look at this list of kings, there were some of these kings who were decent kings, who were pretty good kings. Some of them were absolutely wicked, and there's really no order to them. Uh, D. A. Carson describes this. He says there is no obvious pattern. Wicked Rehoboam was the father of wicked Abijah, the father of the good king Asa. Asa was the father of the good king Jehoshaphat, who was, who sired the wicked king Jorah. Good or evil, they were part of Messiah's line. For though grace does not run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived. ...or outmaneuvered. Just to give you a great description, Manasseh is in this list. And Manasseh, I think, was the worst king of Israel's history. And this is a little lengthy, but I want to quote from you from 2 Kings. Here's the description of Manasseh. This is the guy that finds himself in the very line of Jesus. Listen, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Maybe that's part of the problem, he was a little too young. But he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord... According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, those were places of worship outside of the temple, which was strictly forbidden. That Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars to Baal, a foreign god, and made an Asherah, a female foreign goddess, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. So it was a pagan practice of offering your son to Baal. And used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, those who speak to the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah, that's the goddess that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He puts this foreign idol in the temple itself. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded. And this this is the summary of Manasseh. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. God brought Israel into that land, removed Canaan, and at this point Manasseh leads Israel to a point in which they are more evil than the Canaanites that they routed out of that area. What's the point, friends? The point is this is the world in which Jesus enters, a broken world. In fact, every, every genealogy we went around this room has probably got some, some secrets, some dark side to it. I have a friend who was researching the family tree of his own family until he find started to run into some loops in the family tree and his aunt told him, give it up, right here, right now. Don't look any further. Yes, Jesus is completely innocent. But he's not distance from brokenness. He's not distance from sin. He is up close and personal with it. He is in our world. And our world's a fallen one. Our world's a broken one. Our world's a sinful one. And Jesus steps in to fix it. To redeem it. To recreate it. Right here in his genealogy we see what kind of savior he's going to be. One who doesn't put a big gap between him and sin, but walks with us in our broken world. Even the term Savior assumes a need for salvation. Somebody who needs saving is somebody who has sinned and needs God's grace from it. You know, if you're talking to someone who doesn't know the Lord, the first thing you have to come to is a realization that we are sinners, that I'm a sinner and that you're a sinner. If they can't come to a realization that they, that he or she is a sinner, you have nowhere to go, friends. (laughs) You have nowhere to go from there. What are you going to tell them? Well, accept Jesus because he's a good friend? No, he's a savior first. Until we recognize that all of us are broken, all of us are sinful. We don't recognize what kind of savior he is. Christmas is a hard time for many people. We've said that. Partly because of grief. We talked about that last week. By the way, just as a side note, when it comes to grief, be willing to talk about the family member who's passed away. It's a common mistake we make when you're dealing with somebody who has lost someone close you think i don't want to bring it up i don't want to mention that person's name it's exactly the wrong thing to do by the way somebody who has lost someone close they want to talk about him or her they want to regain that memory they want to celebrate and it doesn't have to all be all the, about the person's passing but talk about all the good times with that person but more than that friends christmas is a hard time for many because sometimes it's filled with a lot of regret broken relationships If I can only do it again. Don't have that relationship with your ex-wife, with your best friend, with your brother, your sister, whatever it may be, something that's been lost. And maybe Christmas just makes that wound, just pours salt on that wound for you, makes it even more evident. Understand, friends, Christmas does not keep its, Jesus himself does not keep an arm's length away from us. Christmas itself celebrates a savior who is neck deep in a sinful world who's come to save us in the midst of our pain and our brokenness so I was thinking earlier as I was singing it is well with my soul everyone was singing that I was thinking about the very issues that people are going through I've heard about just this morning whether that's a, a son who's kind of wayward and just weighing heavy on your heart whether that's losing a sister an older sister that you, know, you just lost a couple weeks ago whether that's dealing with bedbugs at your house, whatever it may be, to sit here and just sing together, it is well with my soul. You know why it's well with our soul? <laughs> because we have a savior who steps into our world to redeem us from our sin, to fix our brokenness. Not one who stands apart from us, but one who enters, as we see it right here in the genealogy, into all that is wrong with our world, to become like us in every way yet without sin. What does Jesus say about Christmas? Well, his background speaks for itself. He entered our world in history, not as a legend or a myth, but into this very world in which you and I live. He came to save all types of people. He is indiscriminate in the people he has come to redeem, all nations, male and female, all classes, it makes no difference, all those who would come to him. And he steps into brokenness. we learn about Jesus tells us a little bit about him. Just like if you and I would look into our genealogy, we'd learn a little bit about ourselves. When I look into my family tree, I'm a Harrington. I'm an Irish guy, uh, through and through in many ways. Uh, I got uh, all the traits of of being Irish. That's certainly part of me. But I'm also a Chun, C-H-O-N. I'm also a Korean, and it's there as well. Hopefully I can take the best of both worlds. But that's probably not what happened, right? So I I got a little mix of, of all the problems of both worlds and the blessings of both worlds. Jesus' genealogy reveals the type of savior he is. The one we need. Pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for what we get to celebrate on Christmas. Not a neat little story about being nice and taking care of your neighbor, those are good things to do, of course. But about a savior who has come into our broken world to redeem sinners like us. Father, I don't know what anyone everyone here is going through and what some are going through, but I don't know what everyone's going through. Maybe there is feelings of guilt and regret that become more and more evident, broken relationships with family or friends or whatever it may be. Help them to recognize, help them to see that this, our Savior, has come just for people like you. He never stands apart from sinners. Indeed, Lord, he is the friend of sinners. But he didn't come just to befriend us, Lord. He came to redeem us. And he does so on the cross of Christ in which he takes our place. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray that we would make the most of this Christmas. would be a good witness to our neighbors and friends. would invite them, encourage them, tell them what Christmas is really all about and invite them to celebrate with us that Jesus welcomes everyone who would come. And put their faith in Him. And Lord, let us, as a church family, celebrate this big time. (laughs) This is not a a small little holiday like celebrating bathtubs or maple syrup. This is about what really matters. This is about our Savior in our world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.